0: I was going to say have a seat, but you got that. Thanks, worship team. Stewart family, Justin Albison, thank you. I told them they should go by Stubiston today. That should be there. The band Stubiston leading worship, but I couldn't get anybody convinced. 2019, what a year, huh? Yeah, I got a few days left. You ready for it to be over? You don't know. I'm non committal. You're like, he's setting a trap. You are correct. <laughs> I'm usually setting a trap. I learned a lot last year. And uh, some lessons I knew. You know how it is sometimes you learn something and then you relearn it and, and then you learn it a little better and a little deeper. And that's kind of what 2019 was for me. Just some some big things. One of the big uh, just to share a couple to get us started and to take us where uh, Scripture wants to take us today, is one of the lessons I learned. I'm going to give you three or four. One is that your life is a product of your consistencies, not your exceptions. And uh, God teaches me a lot through my waistline, because I I've I've probably lost fifty pounds this year, and I've probably found a lot back, (laughs) a few times. Anyway, (laughs) so anyway, that's that was a good lesson for me. It's one that I'm taking into my new year. I learned. Uh, I was talking to someone before service this year. In, in that waistline journey, waistline 101, that I have not left my entire life yet, but this year, 2020, man, we're focusing, right? Um, my problem is not, I realize that my problem isn't with things, my problem is my relationship to things. That was a big lesson. I realized that I was looking uh, to different things to give me things that only God could. So that was a big lesson for me. So I'll share that with you. Boundaries. Man, I learned a lot about boundaries this year. That series I did on boundaries back in the spring, early uh, summers was was amazing for me. I hope it was good for you. Uh, In fact, I echoed it repeatedly throughout the year. And we'll come back to it again some more next year in 2020. I just realized that boundaries are fences by which you let the good stuff in and keep the bad stuff out. And that was really important. And through that, the huge lesson I learned was about grief. I it always kind of been like, oh, I hate grief. It's one of those things you have to do. But I realized through the Boundary Series that grief is just a, it's your friend. Grief is a way to let go of things. And it was very, very healthy for me last year. So big, big lessons there. Um, so this year, and this one, this lesson's going to impact you in 2020 as, uh, because I'm your pastor. And, and it's, it's this. Um, throughout the history of Ordinary Faith, we have tried to deal with the uh, the problems that are unique, well, maybe not unique to our community, but to our current time and culture and history. Work schedules and recreation schedules and sports schedules. And we've tried to be very accommodating throughout the years. And um, in, in doing that, we've kind of taken on a responsibility that wasn't ours to take. And Well, I have. And so next year, I'm going to, I'm going to work more on challenging you. And what that means is, is I'm going to do some more workshops on Sunday afternoons, maybe weekday evenings. We'll see what uh, kind of works for uh, our schedule and different things. But I'm going to challenge people with these things, and uh, it's going to be like this. And don't take this wrong or offensively, but it's like, if you want to grow in your relationship with Christ, we are here to help. But if it's not worth making time to do... There's nothing we can do. And so I'm going to let that go, and I'm going to challenge you to make time next year for Christ. And that's kind of what this sermon today is about. So that's that was that's been good for me. It helped me let some things go in that regard. But the one I really want to kind of segue into our text today is this one. It came out in a sermon. It was so significant for me that i couldn't let it go i wrote it down i studied it again it showed up in several sermons thereafter and it's this simple one-liner from jesus that's god always exceeds our expectations but almost never meets them god just has a way of, of doing way more than we ever thought but in ways we never dreamed and so with that in mind i want to jump into a scripture that we're going to use as, uh, as, as our foundation for today, kind of what we're trying to do. And what I am trying to do is to give you a foundation of habits and practices for 2020 upon which you can build goals and accomplish victory through them, okay? You with me? Yes. Thanks, honey. Here, I'll sit next to you. <laughs> we'll, we'll just talk it over. They don't want to know. Are you ready? Yes. He wants us to say we're ready. Okay, good deal. Let's jump in. First, Second Kings, chapter 13. Imagine an old, crusty prophet, probably wears some kind of leather, looks more like a biker today than a preacher, but nonetheless, imagine that guy, that's Elisha, but now he's old. His tattoos are all shriveled up with age. <laughs> Sorry, that was evil. Anyway, second Corinthians, second Kings thirteen. When Elisha was in his last illness, King Jehoash of Israel visited him and wept over him. Oh, what, an, what a relationship. He's crying, this king over this old crusty prophet, and he says, My father, my father, I see the chariots and charioteers of Israel, he cried. If you've ever heard that old gospel song, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, that's where it's founded in this verse right here. So, goes on to say, verse 15, Elisha told the king, Please try and get try and visualize this. I'll help you in just a minute, but try and visualize this. This Hebrew king, not a European king, a Hebrew king, they dress a little different, standing over the bed of this crusty old prophet, He's almost dead. And Elisha tells the king, the guy in the bed says to the king, Get a bow and some arrows. And the king did as he was told. And then Elisha told him, Put your hand on the bow. And Elisha laid his own hands on the king's hands. So see it. Here's this royalty. It's leaning over, this rough-looking prophet. And those old, gnarled hands reach out of that bed, and they they go on the hands of the... the, uh, What did I say? Uh, Anyway... (laughs) Sometimes I don't know what I say. Anyway, uh, that's why I never listen to my own recordings. But they lay there, he lays those hands on the king's hands while he's holding the bow. Can you see it? Kind of envision that? All right. Then he commanded, Elisha commanded, Open that eastern window. And the king opened it. And he said, Shoot. And so he shot an arrow. And then Elisha proclaimed, This is the Lord's arrow, an arrow of victory over Aram for you will completely conquer the Aramaeans and at Aphek. So stop. The king walked over to the window. After the prophet laid his hands on his hands holding the arrow, the king walked over to the window and he fired an arrow out. And then Elisha declared what the arrow was. He proclaimed what that arrow was. He gave the arrow an identity. This is not archery practice in a grieving bedroom. This is something else. This is the arrow of victory. So hear this Elisha the man of God Is saying to the king The leader in God's hand This is victory Out the window Okay Now what happens after that Then he said Elisha says to the king Now pick up the other arrows And strike them against the ground So the king picked them up And struck the ground Three times You see it See in your head? Got the picture in there? Here's the king. Does he look a little annoyed? Does he look like, what is this old guy telling me to do? Old people are so annoying. <laughs> is that what he looks like? Now look what happens. Now, before I go to the next verse, I want you to realize this is a dying man in a bed, Okay? He doesn't have much energy left. It takes a lot of work to, to get through your last few days on this planet. So he's out of energy. He's almost gone. And look what happens. But the man of God was angry with him. You should have struck the ground five or six times, he exclaimed. Then you would have beaten Aaron until it was entirely destroyed. Now you'll be victorious only three times. Then Elisha died and was buried. Don't tick off dying people. That's not the lesson at all. I just wanted you to capture the the image. Okay, I want you to see Elisha got angry with this king. Why? Because his apathy. How is the king being apathetic? Elisha just said, this is victory. Right now, that arrow symbolizes and means the victory of God. How much victory do you need, king? So you take those arrows and you strike them in the ground. And the king's like, oh, this is stupid. You can almost see some like teenager-like attitude in the king. This is dumb. Boom, boom, boom. And Elisha freaks out, uses his last living energy to freak out on this king. You You with me? You got the story now. So here's what I suggest. I suggest that this story is incredibly relevant to us today. And as we walk through this message today, I want you to remember that Paul said, and we'll read the verse later, that overwhelming victory is ours in Romans chapter 8. And the King James, he says, we are more than conquerors. I'm going to tell you, when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, that was your arrow out the window. That was your arrow of God saying, victory. This is the Lord's victory in your life. So... Every day we start the day, through the day, in the day, driving arrows in the ground or not. Saying, I have victory. I have victory. I have victory. And so today I want you to look I want to look at five things. Little habits. They're things children can do. They're not giant in any way, but they need to be foundational to what you do in your Christian life on a daily basis. And I learned them in the weirdest of places. I learned them from the persecuted church in Iraq. So what happened was someone sent me a video on YouTube that wrecked my day and maybe my life called Sheep Among Wolves. Very challenging look at what it is to be a Christian in the Middle East right now. It challenged me because when I was done with the video, I'm like, I'm not even sure I'm saved after seeing what these Christians are going through, you know. But as I went through that, as I watched that video, not long after that, God, God has a way of stringing things together in my life. I don't know if He does that for you or not. I know he does this some. I hear people come to me all the time and say, Man, you taught on something today that I had heard on the radio this week that connected with a song I heard last week, and on and on it goes. Well, not long after that, I heard Francis Chan talking about the persecuted church. And he talked about five pillars of the persecuted church, the Christian church in Iraq. Now, if you know anything about the Christians in Iraq, and I don't know much, but I know a little. I know they come out of Islam And there are five pillars of Islam. And so those Christians who have come out of Islam have have found and identified five pillars for the Christian church, the persecuted church in Iraq. And I'm going to tell you what they are, and this is basically my outline today. I have five points. I normally have three, and that takes me almost 50 minutes, so you do the math. (laughs) When they share their faith with somebody... When they invite them to follow Jesus, in Iraq, there is none of this here. You need to accept Jesus in your heart. They're inviting them to follow Jesus. When they do, they let them know right up front, here's the deal. You have to, you, this is a commitment to read your Bible and grow in God's Word every day. This is a commitment and to be devoted to prayer. This is Following Jesus means you are going to share your faith regularly every chance you get in a persecuted culture. That's a tough thing. That means that you're going to expect miracles from God, that God can do the impossible in your life and in your country. And lastly, you need to prepare to suffer for following Jesus. They tell them that before they ever invite them into the family. Before there's ever a defining moment in the persecuted church in Iraq, they lay out for them, this is what this is going to look like. And if you were here last Sunday, you know that's exactly what I did at the end of that very long gospel presentation last week. laid them out. So today, I want to use those five pillars of the Christian church in Iraq as a foundation for how you live your life in 2020. If you'll take these things and use them and apply them, they will undergird, they will will sit underneath whatever your goals and dreams and visions are. In fact, they may change those things, but they'll become a foundation to build next year on, give you real focus, because I promise you this. 2020 will not be a year of focus for the majority of the planet. It will be a year of distraction and misinformation. That I can guarantee. But you, if you're going to grow, you will have to be focused. So let me give you five tools that I've already mentioned today. Five arrows in the ground that will give you and propel you toward victory. Okay? I'll talk a little bit more. In fact, I'll make some statements as we roll along. about them. So I don't want you to get the wrong idea. And I just totally preached a whole different part of the sermon. So let's (laughs) roll on. I'm going to jump right into growing the word. Wow. I I don't know if I made that longer or shorter. We'll find out. Colossians 316 is one of my, I should never say that I have a favorite verse because they're all so good. But Colossians 316 out of the English standard version says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. The first thing I want to encourage you to do this year is to grow in the Word of God. But I want you to really hear me. I want to be very clear here. I'm not asking you to read your Bible. I'm asking you to grow in the Word. Different things. You know, you can read your Bible. I've done it. I've done it for, you know, days, months, and even years on end. Just gone through, got that checked off my list. I'm going to read the Bible more this year. And so I read the Bible, get my five chapters, one chapter, whatever I'm doing, checked off. That's not what I said. I didn't say I want you to read your Bible in 2020. I want you to grow in the Word in 2020. What's the difference? Well, the difference is this. For 1,400 years, the Christian church did not have a Bible That was available to the common person. We did not have Bibles in print that people could get a hold of. It didn't even start till the 1400s, but it didn't get actually prevalent till much later, okay? And so I want you to understand that for at least 1400 years, probably closer to 1500 years, people still had a relationship with Jesus, even though they didn't have a physical Bible in their hand. Now, don't go the wrong way with this. Don't sit there and think, well, see, I don't even need to read the Bible. That's not where I'm taking you, dude. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I am trying to tell you is this. The Bible is a means to something. This idea that we worship the Bible and we put it up on a platform, that, that's not a good idea. The Bible is a means to a person. The Bible It's a means to the person. Jesus told the Pharisees, you'll search the scriptures because you think in them you have life and they are that which testify of me. Jesus is saying, get in the word, but in the word you're going to find Jesus. Okay? And so it's very important that you and I start to fill our lives with the word of God. Yes, it means to read your Bible, of course. It may mean to listen to your Bible on the way to work. I'm just telling you to get as much of God's Word in you as you can get into you because you that through doing that you're going to come to know who God is who Jesus is this is how you're going to 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 get God's ideas in you and the more of God's ideas you're gonna have floating around your head the more you're gonna identify things God's doing in the world around you so I want you to grow in God's Word I want you to be that guy what guy the Bible guy. I want you. I know. You're like, Michael, this is crazy. Yes. Everything I'm going to say today is nuts from a worldly standpoint. I get it. I just don't care. When you know the truth, you speak the truth. And here's the truth. I want you to be the Bible nut in your family, at job, at your job. I want you to be the one who knows. And I don't want you to preach at him all the time, although it might be helpful to preach at him some of the time. But I want the one who knows, who knows the scriptures well enough, that that you, when you, when things happen, they bring up Bible stories, that when when challenges come along, there are scriptures that come to your mind and awaken you. When I was 13, a a dear friend in our church asked to take me to a conference, asked my parents if he could take me to a conference. And so for a week, we went to this conference down in Memphis, Tennessee, and in that conference, we were taught, just, oh gosh, just flooded with all kinds of information and stuff out of the Word of God. Through that, the best thing that happened for me was that I was challenged to do two things. One, I was challenged to read through the Bible regularly. Two, I was challenged to memorize large portions of Scripture at 13. So I came back and I read the Bible through like seven times over the next five or six years, which I thought was quite an accomplishment then. And, and the, But also, I started to try and memorize larger portions of Scripture. So I started at 13 and into 14, memorized Romans chapter 6. Because, you know, every 13-year-old boy struggles with sin. I mean, not so much girls, but boys. I was just checking to see who was listening. Uh, Romans 8, a large portion of Romans 8, I, I got embedded in my heart. Uh, James 1 was one I got embedded in my heart. And for years, even to this day, as I go to sleep, because I was taught this in this conference at a very... Key time in my life, I would go to sleep quoting and thinking about those verses. It changed my life. My grades went, you know, I was like a mediocre student. And because of that time in my life, my grades went up. Opportunities became available to me. Anyway, I could talk to you all day about the blessings of that. What I'm trying to show you is that, that we need God's Word deeply embedded in us. We need to do that so we can come to know God. Okay? Now, here's the thing. I don't want you to misunderstand anything I say today. I don't want you to think, well, I need to go out here and I need to make these five new rules and live my life by. That is is so not what I'm saying. And I know what's happening in some hearts right now. You took, okay, I need to grow in the word. You took that as a, like you're like, if I don't do this, God's not going to be happy with me. So I want to clarify something right now. That's not what I'm talking about. I am saying, one, there is only one way to please God, and that's the blood of Jesus. That is the only way. Going to church more, giving more money, uh, reading your Bible more, laying down your life on the mission field, none of those things make you pleasing to God. Do you hear me? Somebody should have said amen right there. None of those things will make you pleasing to God. I'm not talking about making you pleasing to God. The only thing that makes you pleasing to God is the blood of Jesus Christ. I'm talking about choosing God. Choosing God. I'm talking about choosing to get up earlier to spend time with God before you head off in your day. I'm talking about choosing to spend time with God in His Word over Netflix binging, over gaming, over a recreation that is very important to you. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm talking about choosing God say amen. Amen. Act like you understood it, okay? Got it? I think you do. Now, grow in the word. Number one, drive that arrow deep. I'm going to grow in the word in 2020. Why? Because I want God more than I want me, more than I want what I've got. Second, devotion to prayer. Second arrow, drive it into the ground. An arrow of victory. Devotion to prayer. The Bible says in Colossians 4, I love this verse, Paul says, "Devote yourselves to prayer with an alert mind and a thankful heart. Devote yourselves to prayer. Devote yourselves to prayer." Jesus did so many cool things when he was on the planet, in the flesh. I mean, he uh, turned water into wine, made that an interesting party. Just kidding. You have to read it yourself. He he uh, fed five thousand people, walked on water, calmed storms. Healed sick people, raised people from the dead. He had these 12 guys who followed him around. At no point in Scripture do we see any of the 12 guys go like, Hey, uh, Jesus, or pull the horse shack. I know that's dated. Ooh, 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 Jesus. We have at no point where this. Jesus, would you teach us how to walk on water? I got a beach party next week, and I think that'd be cool. I thought it was funny. Anyway. We don't see any of that. We don't see the disciples, hey, how do we raise the dead? How do we? But we do get one question. Jesus, would you teach us to pray? To pray. Luke 11, Luke 18, Matthew 18. Would you teach us to pray? I'm sorry, Matthew 6, not 18. So, why? What about Jesus' prayer life was so significant that his disciples wanted to learn it? No one has ever walked up to me. I'm sorry, I just got to be straight with you, man, because I'm a doer. Man, I, prayer is one of those things I'm always fighting for. And, I, you know, I do enjoy some seasons of prayer, but it's just not. I mean, no one's ever come up and said, hey, Michael, I love the way you pray. Would you teach me how you do that? That's never happened, okay? And I got to be straight with you. I, I've, I've never really known anybody either that I'm like, hey, man, I love the way you pray. I'd like to learn how to do that. It's never really been on my radar like that. But here in Jesus' life, there's something about Jesus that they see, and they're like, teach us to pray. And here's why I think it is. Here's what I think it is. And I I can't really prove it, but I kind of can. I think that they realized that the reason Jesus can turn water into wine, walk on water, feed 5,000 people, heal leprosy, open blind eyes and deaf ears, raise the dead, I think they realized, oh, it's because that dude prays. He prays so much that all of a sudden the things that are impossible in our world are now possible in his. And so I want to tell you guys, we need to start praying. I mean, really praying. And I'm not just talking about praying for either. I know that you all have things that you need God to do. In fact, I saw I was watching a Tarn Wells video last night and they had a quote on the board that said something like, I'm not going to get this exactly right, but it said something like, if all your prayers were answered right now, how would the world change? I was totally convicted because I'm like, well, my world would change. I don't know about anybody else's, you know, but my world would. And I'm just saying, we need to start praying. And here's why. Luke, I mean Hebrews four sixteen. Writer of Hebrews says, "Listen to this. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive His mercy." And we will find grace to help us when we need it most. Oh, it's an invitation right there. I mean, if you got an invitation from someone that you admired, would would you take it? Like, for example, several years ago, my wife for a a birthday present, I think it was a birthday present, might have been another present, she got me tickets to see Stephen Curtis Chapman. You may not even know who he is, but of all the musicians in all the world, there's only one I ever cared to meet, and it was Stephen Curtis Chapman. Loved his music, greatly impacted me when I was a young man. I loved the way he plays. I loved the variety of his style. and so she got me tickets to go to a conference. He was going, I mean go to a, a, con, a concert. He was down in Utah. Not only did she give me tickets, she was able to get one backstage pass for me. I was going to get to meet the only musician I ever cared to meet. And I got sick the day of I mean, really sick. And you know what I did? I went to that concert. I shook his hand, and I probably gave him the flu, but I went, okay? I had a chance to go see someone I admired, and if you had a chance to see someone you admired and actually meet them, you would take it and hear the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the God of the universe, Jehovah is in heaven right now saying, hey, come boldly to the throne room of grace. You'll find grace and mercy to help you in a time of need. Think of it this way. I am totally going to dramatize this and it will still be under what's really going on. But think of it this way. Every moment in heaven, God's setting out this huge buffet. No, no, like a flea market of new stuff. And it's grace and mercy. It's just grace and mercy, but it's all these different things that we need right now because the things you need come of his grace. And then right now it's all set out in this flea market. And here's God saying, come, Come on, whatever you need, I've got it. You just come to the throne room, pick up what you need, because i got the grace, i got the mercy for that, whatever that is. But here's me. I'm a human being just like you. And just like you, here's how I look at my life. I don't want to trouble the God of the universe with my little problems, which is a very arrogant way of saying, it sounds humble, but it's just one way of saying, I can handle this myself. And I got news for you. News flash. You can't. You can't. And so God says, I want you to come. And that's what prayer's about. Prayer's about receiving from God. And that's why it's so hard. And from our middle class norms or whatever class you consider yourself, from those norms, we try to meet all of our own needs. But God did not design us, nor did he create us, to be sufficient in ourselves. We need him. We were created to be a vessel that holds the presence of God. That's what we're created for. That's what what the bottomless hole in you is. And so God says, come to the throne room. And you get everything you need. It's all ready for you. What an invitation. So... Tomorrow's going to be Monday. I know New Year's Eve and New Year's and all that stuff is coming. But I want to challenge you to start your day, continue your day, interrupt your day with visits to the throne room where there's all the grace and mercy you need. Guys, we need to learn devotion and prayer. And And one of the reasons, not the number one, but one of the reasons is the world needs things from the church today that are impossible from natural ability. We cannot raise enough money in ourselves. We cannot do enough work. We cannot find enough volunteers. We need things that are impossible. And the only place to get those is the throne room of God. But we'll come back to that in a minute. Okay? So that's your second arrow to drive in the ground. Devotion and prayer. Grow in the word. Devotion to prayer. Third. <clears throat> I hope it's a third. You never know where I'm going. There we go. All right, Romans one sixteen. Oh, I want you to hear this verse. I want you to hear this verse so bad. Romans 1.16, Paul writes, I'm not ashamed of this good news about Christ. I, I grew up on the King James Version Bible. And even though I hardly use it anymore, I use a lot of other translations. But I love, there's some things I will never get tired of the way the King James says them. And in the King James it says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. And in this in NLT it says, it is the power of God at work saving everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Gentile. The gospel. I like to call it the gospel. Even though if you don't, if you come from outside of church circles, you have no idea what I'm talking about when I say the gospel. I actually think in this case, and usually I try to be, use language that makes sense to everybody, but in this case, it perfectly fits because the gospel is alien to this world. The gospel did not come from here. And I like to use the gospel because when I say the word gospel, then I have to define it. And when I get to define it, I get to tell you what it really is. Because if I say good news, I mean even though that is an accurate description, it is an inadequate description of what the gospel is. Because the good news is the all of the news about Christ. Genesis 1-1, to the last chapter, last amen of the Bible, it's all of that news about Jesus. This is the heritage of the believers in Christ if you're sitting in this room right now and you've had your defining moment, placed your faith in Christ, enthroned Christ as Lord of your life on the throne of your life and he's in charge, then you, my friends, possess in your artillery for this life something called the gospel. And it is mighty to save. Not just just from eternity, not just from hell. It is mighty to save every day. It's mighty to save your marriage. It's mighty to save your kids. It's mighty to save relationships. The gospel is mighty to save. Why? Because it's the gospel, man. You walk around. I like action movies. anybody else like action movies? Okay, Brandy likes action movies. I got you scared today, don't I? All right, man. Suck it up, Buttercup. Let's get real. Let's jump in. You stay with me, all right? I like action movies. I like Rambo. Even the, I just saw the latest Rambo, and I'm like, Stallone, you getting old, man? I'm just the next one's going to be dried blood, anyway. <laughs> Sorry, right, you'd have had that Never mind. I'm gonna... Never mind. But you watch those movies, and he, you know, that first one, I think he, it was the first or second one, he's actually had an M60 machine gun, and he's firing it all by himself because that could really happen. But anyway, and you look at him, go, oh, he's bad to the bone. And I'm like, no, no, he's not bad. It's the machine gun that's bad. You know, he's the guy holding the machine gun. He just knows how to pull the trigger. Christians, you're not bad. The gospel's amazing. It's the power of God to save. We don't need to make it more relevant. We don't need to change it. All we've got to do is share it, man. It has innate power within itself to change people's lives. We just need to tell the story. And so the third pillar, or the third arrow you need to drive in the ground is to share your faith. Tell people. And you're probably sitting there going... I have no idea how to tell anybody about my faith or Christ or anything. and I want to come against that. Yes, you do. Here, it's this simple. Are you ready? Here's your simple gospel presentation that will get you so much farther than you realize. You ready? Here it is. I was a mess. Everybody say, I was a mess. Was a mess. There you go. That's point number one. Point number two, Jesus found me. Say it. Found me. And now I am. There you go. There's the gospel right there. That's how they shared it for 1,400 years right there. They came along. They didn't have the, the, the four spiritual laws. They didn't have the Romans road. The, all they had was, man, I met Jesus Christ, and he flipped my life upside down, sideways, and over the top, and I am changed. That's all you need to get started. Now, should you know more? Sure. Yes, you should know more. But, but in our efforts... As Christians, to grow in our faith, we have tried to make faith very intellectual and very secularly acceptable. And we have forgotten that Jesus said, let the children come. And no one comes into the kingdom who doesn't come like a little child. So yeah, the the gospel is infinitely profound and deep, guys. That's the fact. But it's also amazingly simple. I was a wreck. Jesus found me, and he changed me. Anybody can share that story. Anybody in this room can start at least there and begin to share Jesus wherever you are. But I I mean, it goes so much further than that. I was in business for a number of years before I went full-time, and I found all kinds of opportunities to bring the gospel into my workplace in ways that I didn't get sued over. (laughs) So if you want help with that, let me know. All right, so... Now, I will, and I'll just remind you that this is a gift from God, 2 Corinthians 5.18, who brought us back to Himself through Christ, and God has given us this task of reconciling people to Him. So guys, let's be those ambassadors. Let's drive that arrow deep. Let's get used to the idea, encouraged in the idea, motivated in the idea that our faith is something that needs to be shared. Okay? All right. Now, let's go on to the fourth arrow we're going to drive in the ground. And this one here may give you indigestion. Or it may excite you. It'd probably be one or the other. Probably no middle ground. And that's this. Expect miracles. Expect miracles. I I tell you what, I think we are entering a time. This is me ranting, so just bear with me. I think we're entering a time in history that is so much like the first century. They're so, in The first century was a time of amazing intellectual development. Most of the philosophies that drive everything happening in our world were born 1st uh, century B.C., 1st century A.D. And, and just still around today, that's the world the gospel came to its place in. Still around today. And so I think more than ever, Christians need to rely on the miraculous to display the goodness and the power of God. So what's that going to take? How's that going to happen? Now that you are in the kingdom of God as a Christian, you have enthroned Christ as the Lord of your life. Now that you are in that kingdom, nothing is impossible. You live in the same kingdom Jesus lived in, and, and Jesus told us that in his, the world he lived in, which was a world in his heart and mind, that even though he lived in a world just like, like ours, that in his world, nothing was impossible. So in Mark chapter 9, in that story, Jesus had just come off the Mount of Transfiguration where he kind of peeled back that humanity so people could see what they were really dealing with, specifically Peter, James, and John. He comes off of that mountain, and like often happens when anybody comes off a mountain, they typically encounter doubt, and that's what happened with Jesus. He came off the mountain. The foot of it, his disciples had tried to cast a demon out of a boy. The father went to Jesus, and he said, Hey, your disciples couldn't do anything if you could do something. Would you do it? And I must confess, that has been my prayer life much in my life. God, if there's anything you could do, I'd appreciate it. So Jesus answered to this guy and says, what do you mean, if I can? Then he goes on, and I'm, I'm going to read the whole verse. I'll come back to the second part in a minute. But then he goes on to say, Jesus asked the man, or <clears throat> what, what do you mean, if I can? Jesus asked. Then he said, anything is Possible. Anything is possible. Hey, Christians, Christians, believers in the room. All right, let me talk to you for a second. Let me tell you this. You ready? Anything is possible. Hey, would you tell that to the person next to you? Just kind of turn to him, just for a second. I know this is weird. I'm making it weird on purpose. Anything is possible. Anything is possible. Anything is possible. Yeah, okay, just check it. I'll make sure everybody nobody's cheating. Nobody's cheating. Some of you are sitting there alone going, please don't talk to me. So I'm saying to you, anything is possible. Okay, anything is possible. Why do we think things are impossible? Where did the idea of impossible come from? You ever wondered? I mean, really? I mean, the Creator of the universe sets man on a planet he just created, like it's like ten seconds old. Where did this idea of impossible come from? When God just created everything out of nothing, right? Had to come from somewhere. Sometimes, sometimes it comes from ignorance. Sometimes impossible comes from ignorance. We just don't know how it could be done. Henry Ford had this dream of a V8 engine. God bless Henry Ford. Right, guys? Amen. Hallelujah. Bless God. V8 engine. 327 Chevy engine. Anyway. Sorry. I'm just. It's a guy. I had a guy moment. Chill. It's okay. He went to his engineers at Ford. Said, hey, we're going to build a V8 engine. And you know what? All of his engineers pulled the room. You know what they said? They said, uh, it can't be done. You know what Henry Ford said? He said, I understand that, but we're going to do it anyway. <laughs> 18 months, man. 18 months, Henry Ford, every month, showing up in those engineers, where's my engine? We can't do it. Every month, Henry Ford, very intimidating man, by the way, walks in the room, where's my engine? Can't be done. 18 months later, we got a V8 engine. Becomes a standard for motor for motors for, for decades because one guy had a vision and wouldn't let someone tell him it was impossible, even though he didn't know how to do it. You understand? Sometimes we don't know how to do it, so we believe it's impossible. Sometimes it's ignorance. Sometimes it's blindness. GE, you say, one time had a lamp division. And whenever they hired a new engineer in that division, they always had this crank. You, you, you know how it is, the, the gag thing, the new guy gets the, the test, you know? So Marvin Pipkin starts his first day on the job, and here's the the test, the gag on the new guy. We want you to frost the inside of a light bulb. (coughs) (laughs) Nobody told Marvin Pipkin it was impossible. A few months later, he designs an acid etching that they can use on the inside of a light bulb that actually strengthens and frosts the light bulb at the same time. Nobody told Marvin it couldn't be done, so he did it. They couldn't see it. They couldn't believe it. There was ignorance. And this guy believed and did it. So yeah, ignorance and blindness can make things look impossible. But Jesus said the problem was this. He said, what do you mean if I can? Jesus asked, anything is possible if a person believes. Back to what Jesus said earlier. That if someone wants to come into the kingdom of heaven, they must become as a child. I used to have a friend many years ago in the Boot Hill, of Missouri. We lived in a little town called Hornersville. Population 650 with the mosquito population was much, much, much higher. <laughs> and I had a friend named Wayne. Frank, Wayne hadn't been, hadn't been a believer that long. I tell you what, young believers who get in the Word and just start believing it for what it says, drive me crazy. <laughs> Bug me silly. Because Wayne... He just started believing God for everything. Their worship team needed a guitar player. He had never played guitar in his life. So he says, hey, the church starts praying and asking God to teach him guitar, picks up the guitar and starts playing and starts like on the worship team within the month, man. Crazy. That's how Wayne rolled. And I was like, because I was a much more mature believer at that point. Wayne, you can't do that. Wayne's sitting there playing guitar, worshiping God, going, you're right, I can't do it. But Jesus can. Woo! Jeez, man. We need to get a little bit more childlike in our faith. God can change this, whatever this is. I know it's 2020. Some of you have been doing New Year's resolutions for your whole life, every year, every January. All right, this year I'm really going to do it. And you haven't yet. I know. I know yesterday I pulled out my commitments from January of 2019. I looked at all of them and said, well, that one thing I did okay on. The other 25, I forgot all about. Okay, you been there? Well, guys, it's time to change, it's time to change the whole foundation this is all built on. Because up until this moment, you've built everything you've done on what you could do, what you knew, and what you thought Well, now it's time to expect miracles, not just in your life, but in your family, not just in your family, but in your community and not just in your community, in your church. It's time to expect God to do what God has always done. Awesome stuff. And here, and how are we going to get there? How is that going to happen? Well, I'll tell you how it's going to happen. It's actually very simple. Jude gave us the key in Jude 120. Jude said, but dear friends, must build each other up you must build each other up in your most holy faith and pray in the power of the holy spirit jude says hey build your faith because jesus said anything is possible if someone what's that word believes anything is possible if someone believes so what we need to work on is the believing part the faith building up that faith within us and also we need to work on not Quitting. Sometimes when you ask God for an oak tree, He gives you a seed instead of the tree. Because He knows you aren't ready to handle the tree, yet you've got to grow into it. Does that make sense? So you've got to look at these things differently. And so it's time for Christians to start expecting more. Why? Because you live in a new kingdom. A kingdom in which Jesus stood in as the Lord and King of that kingdom and said anything is possible. Can you look at your problem right now and say, anything is possible? Anything could happen here. Anything is possible. Amen? That's your fourth arrow in the ground. And the last one, and your least favorite, I'll just tell you that right now. You ready? The last arrow that we need to drive in the ground is that we need to prepare for suffering. Have you ever noticed that the best things in your life typically come on the other side of some pain? Just kind of how things work, isn't it? I'm reading the book right right now. It's funny that you should post that the other day. It's hilarious because I'm reading the book. I'm almost done with it. It's called Can't Hurt Me. It's not a Christian book. It's got some language in it. But this guy is a psycho, for real. I'm like, I don't know how you're not dead, dude. Um, His story of going through Navy SEAL training, going through Hell Week more than two times, but not quite three, running a hundred mile ultra marathon without any training and almost dying in the process. Just reading this guy's story has been inspiring and like I could never be that dude as well. I'm like, I don't want to die today. But as I read it, I'm also seeing so many spiritual parallels about how that, that, that through pain wonderful things can happen, as every mother in the room knows, right? So Peter said in 1 Peter 4, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you're going through as if something strange were happening to you. Instead, be very glad. For these trials, listen to this, hear this, these trials make you partners with Christ in His suffering so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing His glory when it is revealed to all the world. When we go through suffering, we are partners with Jesus. Nobody suffered more than Jesus. Nobody lost more than Jesus. Nobody sacrificed more than Jesus. And when we enter into suffering in our life, listen, you take the things that I'm teaching you today seriously and you start living your life this way, people are not going to understand. Christians are not going to understand if I had a nickel for every grumpy Christian who told me I couldn't do something, I'd have at least 100 bucks by now. I mean, there's a lot of them, okay? Nickel doesn't go as far as it used to. <laughs> <I'm>, so <clears throat> so to realize when we go through suffering, we become partners with Christ. And nothing makes us more like Christ faster than suffering with Him. Remember I said that. Nothing makes us more like Christ faster than than suffering with Christ, it makes you victorious over sin. That's right. Suffering with Christ, First Peter four says that you've overcome sin when you do that. And so, my point is, is that when suffering comes into your life, stop fearing it. Don't be afraid of it. That God tells us over and over and over again to, to not fear. And so when the trouble comes, when people don't understand, when things are lost because of your faith, or just life in general comes to take them away, do not fear. Get ready. Because you and Jesus are about to do a side-by-side. You're about to go through some stuff together. You will not be alone. When you stand on the mountaintops, you'll know God got you there. And when you walk through the valleys, you'll know He's at your side. So do not fear the suffering, man. In fact maybe start looking forward to it because every good thing in your life came on the other side of some pain and maybe start realizing maybe what's going on here isn't just the enemy trying to tear me down or the world trying to just blow me up maybe what's happening is god's getting ready to level me up Maybe God's getting ready to conquer the devil I've been fighting for the last month, day, years, whatever. Maybe God's getting ready to crush that sucker so I can walk on his head up into my new challenge. And it will be a new challenge. Why? Why does God do it this way? I'll tell you why. I'll tell you something you may not have considered. Most of us look at this life kind of like an endurance race. What's what do I mean? Well, an endurance race, the victory of an endurance race for most, unless you are really good, the victory of an endurance race is simply finishing the race. I finished. Woo! I ran ten blocks. Hey! <laughs> I didn't die. I thought I would when I started, but here I am. Hallelujah! I endured. Woo! What if life isn't an endurance race? What if it's a qualifying race? What if this life is qualifying you for whatever you're going to do in the next? What if heaven isn't just a retirement plan like most Christians think? Most Christians' ideas, I suffer here for a while and I try and survive until I die. And then I get to float on a cloud and play a harp forever. <laughs> and all the guys are going, that stinks. I don't even want to go. That's not heaven. You know what heaven is, by the way? Heaven is God's presence. Heaven is where God is. That's what heaven is. Is it a place? Oh, yeah, it's probably a place. But if God wasn't there, it wouldn't be heaven. It would just be a place. You've got to understand that, okay? Jesus, Do you know Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6? He said, we will judge angels. We will judge angels. That implies that there's more happening after this. Guys, I'm suggesting that this life's a qualifying race. Maybe it's like basic training. Where God uses the difficulties of this life to strip the weakness out of you and nail them to the cross with his son so that you are set free from those weaknesses to enter into the next life completely powerful and ultimately victorious. Maybe that's what's going on. I'm just challenging you to change the way you look at this life. Because if you do, you'll stop being a survivor and start being a thriver. Let me tell you something. survival's great if all you need to do is survive. But surviving will ruin your life if you need to be thriving. You stay in survival mode your whole life. It will wreck you. You have to plan for a future. Because survivors don't plan for a future. They're just getting through today. Thrivers look to tomorrow. Does that make sense? So five arrows to drive in the ground. Grow in the Word. Don't just read it. Grow in the Word. Devotion to prayer. You need resources that are not available to you in this realm. They are available to you in a throne room in which you have an open invitation to enter at any moment. Share your faith. We are now here as ambassadors of Jesus Christ. We are here living our lives in a way that beckons people to return to God. Expect miracles. God's going to do amazing things in your life. He's going to surpass everything you could possibly dream of. And prepare for suffering. There's going to be difficulty. There'll be pain. There'll be losses. Things will not go as you expect. That's what this life is. The next life is better. If you live your life like this is all you get, that this life is all there is, you're you're go- you're just a survivor. You've got to live for something bigger, something longer, and something that's past your expiration date. Let's bow our heads. Thank you, Lord. I thank you that we as believers have a Lord and a King who knows what's going on and knows how to lead us. I thank you that you saved us and the price you paid on Calvary pays for everything, not just our sin and failures in our past, but for a future that's beyond our wildest imagination, a future that you are more than happy to tell us about according to what we're reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And so, Lord, I just ask you in the name of Jesus to, as you walk among the room, as the Father just settles upon the room, as Holy Spirit works in hearts, that you would compel us to, to something larger next year, a new foundation, a new hope for victory, one that will sustain us through the setbacks, one that will, will lift our head when it's beat down. Lord, I pray that you would help us to drive these arrows deep in the soil of our lives, arrows of victory. And convince our hearts that we are more than conquerors through Christ who loves us. That we have overwhelming victory. Convince our hearts that now nothing is impossible. Would you build that foundation, the actual foundation of Jesus for us? And then show us what to build on it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's stand.